of other writers that do this. I'm sure there are. Something's coming to mind. There's lots, but I, I really enjoy not having like a, you know, like a style per se that like you know he does this. Like I really love that I can I can do the adult stuff and then go away from it and then discover this kids world of like jokes and like you know even like Dorbler kind of explores fantasy cliche. You know, it just takes all those orcs and dragons and things and kind of pokes fun at them. Um, you know, while with adult stuff, you know, you try to be really original. So they really, they just, everything about them, even in their conception and the way I structure them is just totally different. Uh, so I, if I can keep writing them both, I'd love to. Um, it's a lot of fun. And I like that, uh, um, that you're using Michael uh, for the adult books yeah. and Mike yeah. for the middle grade. <laughs> keep it straightforward. Yeah, you know, it's, Penguin was kind of unsure about that. And I was like, why not? You know, I was like, I think people can connect that it's the same person. Um, and it's funny, it actually does, uh, like Amazon created a different page for me for Mike Johnston versus, I guess if there's any small difference, they think they're, you know, they just started up as a new writer. So they're actually, they're listed as different authors on like, you know, most of the Amazon and Barnes and Noble, which is fine. Cause I don't think there's a ton of crossover between the readers anyway. So um, I, I don't really mind it, but yeah, it was like, some people use pseudonyms. It's like a, it's like pseudonym light. You know what I mean? It's like, a, it's the same name almost, but it's like, I don't know. Michael Johnson sounded a bit formal for like a kid's diary book. I mean, it's a really goofy book. I was like, I think I want Mike on it, you know? Like it's more, infinitely uh, more approachable. I think I agree. <laughs> like a kid's author. I don't know. No, I, uh, esteemed audience knows that I write um, yep. uh, middle grade books under the name Rob Kent, and then I'll write adult horror under the name Robert Kent, and I oh, like to alternate yeah. back and forth with you, so. All right, we're on the same team. All right, I got it. So it's like, <laughs> people are doing it. <laughs> Speaking about it, you know what, that that's such uh, good information. I feel that we should just go ahead and, and call that the start of the podcast, because I wouldn't want anybody to have missed that. Um, so, Michael Johnson, welcome to the show. Appreciate you uh, making the time to be here, and we'll chat for I don't know, maybe around an hour or so. Is that pretty comfortable? It, it's it's a it sounds good to me. I'm like all of us in 2020 slash 21. I'm just home, so. <laughs> else to do. Uh, this is a fortuitous uh, a time to be doing a, a, a video podcast. I'd started uh, shortly before the world fell apart. It's like, all right, well, it's just slightly ahead of the curve. Must have. Uh, so, I, in fact, I saw that for uh, your book, Confessions of a Dork Lord, yeah. which we'll be talking about uh, hopefully at length, um, I saw that you managed to sneak in a book tour right there in, in February yeah. of 2020 and ended just before March. Is that right? Yeah, I think it started in late January. But, yeah, you've got you've got the time period just about right. Yeah, I was traveling during the early uh, corona and uh, – not wearing a mask on the nobody in America was wearing a mask in January, so it, it seems insane to me now that I wasn't. Uh, but washing my hands furiously and staying away from people, um, yeah, I did. I did. A, I did a, like a week of, of tours in schools. Was around thousands of kids. It's like a miracle I didn't get the coronavirus out of that. Um, and uh, and then we were in um, we were in Texas for a book festival. God, and that was like February or March. And that was really getting close to it. There was hand sanitizer everywhere. Um, and I could I could feel the world closing. Um, but and then that was the end of it. I haven't obviously done anything since. But uh yeah, no, I'd say it's I'll always remember this book as the one that launched right, right before uh the world went on hold. And uh, you know, the second one is coming out in 2022 spring. Um, it's just they take forever to come out because they're illustrated and that it's taken a long time, but it's worth it because I love the illustrations. Um, so that one will come out on the other side of the pandemic. It'll be spring right after we're all back to normal. So it'll be interesting that these two books kind of bookend the whole pandemic. All, all, you know, they sort of skipped over it. Did you uh, videotape any of your visits from the uh, first, uh, first go round? Interesting. Um, I don't think I have any video. I have, um, have stills 
I just I would love to see just video of your tour for the first book versus the second book. What's what's yeah. different? What's the same? <laughs> There'd probably be a lot of kids in masks on that set. As far as I know, it sounds like these masks are going to be around for a really long time for all of our safety, even after we're vaccinated. So I'm guessing that'll be the big thing. Yeah, they'll be. I'm going to have to look and see if I do have some video. It would be interesting to see the world before and after. I'm, I'm guessing a lot of kids are going to be spaced out. There won't be a lot of uh, gymnasiums full of 500 children. Uh, <laughs> A long time. No, I mean you could probably do a, a lawn show and get maybe that many out. <laughs> I, you know, I'm one of those people. I love school visits. I think it's. I can't think of any more fun. Well, occasionally it isn't, but I, I actually I love talking to like a big group of kids. It's super, especially because this book is so goofy and like um, some of the jokes are just you know really over the top, and it's a fun. It's fun to to talk about some of this stuff in school because. Uh, a lot of it's kind of inappropriate too, and kids love that. So, as far as uh, certain uh, flatulence humor, or yeah, yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of jokes about medieval toilets. Um, you know, I was I was in, um, God, I was where was I? I was in Prague many years ago, and I was looking up at the castle, and there's this little building hanging off the side of the castle. I was a lot younger, and all these stains on the wall and i was i asked the tour guys what is that you're like yeah that's how the toilets work just, <laughs> just it's just a bench that hangs off the side of the tower and then everything just falls out of the tower just 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 not to anybody below you know it wasn't like you know there was like an area that you know to contain it or anything um that was then that was one of the moments that kind of that was one of the first ideas for this book just the like the, just how absurd some things in history are um and how how inherently comic they are i was like oh my god that's a scene for, for a middle grade comedy um and and the kids love to talk about that stuff. i do a whole when i do a book tour i did do a whole talk about medieval history and like gross and weird stuff from it so the kids dig hey. it you say that, and I'm, I'm remembering, I think uh, M.T. Anderson, uh, he might have mentioned Prague, because well, there was the assassination of Penguin Surge. I'm getting the title wrong. I'm trying to find it as we're talking so that uh, when, I, when, I, when I again am out and about in person and I, I hopefully run an M.T. Anderson, I can say, no, I, I definitely remember the name of your book when it matters. <laughs> but it's a, it's a very long title. I could be forgiven. It's The Assassination of Brangwen Spurge by M.T. Anderson. And it's a, it's a fantasy book about goblins, very medieval, and they've got uh, toilets up above the city streets so in the middle of an opera. They're going and they're, they're, sitting, so they're sitting on a hole. Uh, and so if you're walking on the city street below, you just got to keep yeah. an eye out and duck. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh... You know, you would think they would do something about that. Like, no. So, um, different sensibility, which I find fascinating. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think we'd stand for that these days. How horrified might a medieval uh, villager be if uh, we could, you know, um, bring them forward in time and, and, and join us on the podcast? And they could say, I lived a full, incredible and, and rich life. I, I, I loved, I, I, I created art, and that's what you remember about me, how I went to the bathroom. Well, well. <laughs> I do think that's really interesting. Like, these, you, you never know what history is going to find interesting or not. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's something that we're doing right now that they will they will laugh at and ridicule and uh, is absurd that we think is perfectly normal. And I, we, we don't even know what that might be, but you know, I'm, I'm sure it's out there, right? I'm sure that maybe it's this, maybe, maybe Zoom will be mocked somehow. They'll have, you know, holograms or something and they'll think we're weird. Oh, sure, yeah, when everybody's on the Neuralink and, and interfacing directly, like, Something. What's that joke in Back to the Future 2? The kid comes up to the video game, young Elijah Wood, and oh my God, you have to use your hands. I'm not interested yeah. in that video game. Yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> it'll get there, it'll get there. I mean, you know. Talking on screens in our time, if we want to say something to the collective, we just say it and everyone hears it at once and it's yeah. fine. <laughs> I mean, this will be retro soon. So I don't do uh, summaries of other, of, of other people's biographies or other people's books. Um, uh, if you would, maybe the best place to start is just kind of give us a quick overview of your career, and then we'll maybe dive on the confessions of a dork lord, and we'll talk. We'll talk about everything. We'll have a good time. Great. Um, so, um, my first novel that I published by myself um, was called Solarian, twenty seventeen, June twenty seventeen. Um, kind of a you know 
for adults, but gen, you know, I think a lot of teens probably read it too. Um, it was kind of a, it was a somewhat dark epic fantasy, um, kind of a very historic. Uh, my background is actually, I'm actually an architect by background and I had my own firm for many years. So that's, that's what I know about more than anything. And so it was a book that was kind of very much about architectural history and architecture. Um, and it was a book that I spent a lot, I spent like five years writing that book. Like just, you know, one of those things where you throw yourself into something and spend like way longer than you should. Um, I'm very happy with it. I love that book. I spent a long time on it. And uh, this is something we probably, we, we touched on a little bit earlier. Um, Confessions of a Dork Lord grew out of that sort of obsession I had with Solari and the amount of time I spent on it. Um, I began to have this desire to um, do something lighter um, and do something a little more fun. Like I, I used to always call it a palate cleanser. Like when you're having this really long meal and you have something in the middle of it, they kind of, you're having like all these savory dishes, you'll have like this very tart fruit dish that like kind of cleans your mouth out before you have dessert. And that's, that's kind of like what Dork Lord was. It was like, it was, it was just this thing that completely like kind of washed all of these kind of dark, heavy thoughts out of my head and, and gave me something that was just kind of filled with kind of joy and humor. Um, it was something that I thought, you know, my eight, nine-year-old self would just love and think was really damn funny. Um, so, so, and that's why, it, that, it's kind of why I love this book, because it's really, I wrote it to just really kind of do something happy and fun, and it came out of, like, spending way too long on, um, it became two books. My adult series is a duology, uh, and the second book is actually coming out in three weeks, um, and I love those books, but it, it, was, it was fun to do something just completely different, and so um, Confessions was my chance to look at fantasy from, through basically a completely different lens, like, you know, and, and to kind of like have some fun with things is that sometimes I take very seriously. Um, and, and I kind of like that. I kind of like that as a writer, I can approach subject matter, something like fantasy um, in different ways. You know, I don't have just necessarily my own one take on it. Um, you know, uh, Dork Lord lets me look at fantasy in a through a totally different lens. Um, and that makes it fresh when I come back to the material. It gives me, lets me do something different uh, than my adult work. Um, Something I noticed is, I don't know if this is any kind of a through line, but it was just a curiosity, uh, as I had heard you talk about how um, the an Egyptian calendar was the inspiration for your adult series. Uh, and then the, the chapters all through Confessions of a Dorklet are kind of your own for fun calendar. I don't know what that what that through line is, but it seems like there's something there. That's, you know, I, 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 that's awesome you mentioned that, first of all, because I didn't think of that myself. It was not intentional, but it, that, that doesn't mean that you're not absolutely right. Um, because I do, I, I'm one of those people that I do have an obsession with world building. Like I just absolutely, especially in fantasy, I love working out like all the sort of details of the world. While I'm writing, I don't just do it for the sake of world building. I, I don't think that really serves this. It's always to kind of serve the story or, or the mood of the scene or something. But yeah, like Solari, I was reading about the Egyptian calendar. You know, they had 300 and they had 360 days, um, and um, and then there were these sort of five days left. I think you're called epigomeral days. They had these sort of five days that were left over in their calendar. It was you know. They had thirty day. They had these thirty day months. So it was this kind of perfect calendar of always having thirty days in your month. And uh, so there's these five leftover days uh, that were kind of like this feast or holiday um, that were sort of actually considered. They weren't actually like calendar days. It was like it was like literally you had the year of three hundred sixty days, and then these five days in between the the two years that were this festival. And uh, I just thought that was kind of fascinating because like everything in our world is obviously part of we think of it as part of our Outlook calendar. Our, everything in our world is like a system. Um, just the fact that you could have these five days that were outside of normal time uh, and outside of the normal schedule that were just kind of this festival where you didn't work or do anything. And I, so I took that in sort of evolving it and that kind of became the first act of Solari was this, this festival. It was called five days outside of time and place. There were, no one could work, no one could do anything. It's just this feast of the sun. Um, and I. I would keep being fascinated because it seems so different from our modern world um, of just always being on your phone and time and date and like to have something that's outside of time and the normal calendar. I thought was amazing. So that, that was kind of one of the early influences for my adult book. But yeah, that's interesting. You picked up on the, the, the goofy names for the days, you know, Terror Day instead of Tuesday or something. 
Um, I think it was just a little bit of world building, but they they also just sort of made me laugh whenever I looked at them. It sort of sets the tone for each chapter. Um, you remember that you're in this, you know, dark lord world. Um, Did you uh, create like a calendar that you would strictly follow to to make sure that throughout the story? Because I know that you repeat days, so I assume that you you've got some kind of system worked out that you know how exactly how much time has passed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they, you know, um, it's one of those things where I always do do that. I keep track of the day. Um, but, um, you know, publishers are pretty good at that too. Your, uh, your copy editor will usually make a, a list of days just to, just to keep you honest and make sure that you haven't, you know, gotten lost in your work. Um, and you, you, I think in both Dork Lord books, I did mess up the days at some point. <laughs> I had to go back and <laughs> you know, that was, I'd be like, that was a week ago. And they're like, they're counting Tuesday, Thursday. Like, no, you didn't do that right. So, uh, I don't know. So are we talking just a seven-day calendar that you went through and assigned what oh, it, uh, what it, day for each one? Yeah, Dork Lord is super, is, is super straightforward because it's a middle-grade novel. I didn't want to be overly complex. So yeah, Dork Lord is a seven-day calendar. And I just I essentially swapped out the day names for um, days that kind of sounded similar so you could kind of get it. Um, and, you know, like a, like Saturday is Sadder, S-A-D-D-E-R day. <laughs> Um, Sunday is Sunday, Monday, Monday, Monday. Um, so Wednesday, Worms Day. Uh, so they, you know, Fire Day, Friday. You, you know, they're all sort of dark, dark Lord themed uh, names. So, well, before before I start asking you the the slightly more in depth questions, if you would just give a esteemed audience kind of the I don't know the elevator pitch, the overview they need to know about Confessions of a Dork Lord to go ahead and while they're listening to us, be putting it in their cart. Yep. Um, so, Confessions of a Dork Lord. Um, the, it sort of starts with the title, which is obviously a play on uh, Dark Lord, your sort of iconic villain, your Saurons and your Voldemorts, and I suppose Darth Vader's not really literary, but everyone knows what that is. Um, you're, you're sort of uh, your prototypical Dark Lord, evil overlord type ruler. Um, I, don't know, I kind of always, kind of always loved that character, and I was like, eh, I kind of would like to read a book about the Dark Lord. And, uh, but it's a goofy notion. I didn't really want it for an adult book, um, which is kind of how it went to a middle grade series. Um, so, so we have a, a young character, Wick, and he is the son of the former Dark Lord. The Dark Lord is dead and Wick is trying to follow in his footsteps. He wants to be the next Dark Lord, but he isn't quite cut out for it. He's allergic to flame. Uh, he's allergic to fire and doesn't really like being dark or violent or ruling anything. And he's not particularly good at attracting followers or friends. He's a bit of a klutz. He's unpopular at school. Um, so he is in trouble. Um, he's not making it as, a, as the son of the Dark Lord. And no one thinks he's going to be the next Dark Lord. And so the, the sort of arc of the book is him attempting and failing horribly at proving himself, at attempting to uh, claim his father's dark mantle. It's uh, in this world, it's not really, uh, it's not passed down. You have to earn it. You have to march on the chamber of mystery and kill a bunch of terrible guardians and walk through a wall of flame if you want to be the next Dark Lord. And he's just not cut out for it. So uh, in the novels, we see him struggle to, uh, take up that dark crown and become the next dark lord and there's a lot of jokes on the way i love that uh, people are openly telling him that they don't think he's going to make it and they're excited about it because they're going to take his spot it's going to yeah, be wonderful it is, it, exactly <laughs> you've hit upon all the sort of many subplots of the book are um he he has to sort of struggle against all these other people who would like to be the uh the dark lord um well, it puts us in kind of a well, a little bit of an odd position because we're rooting for Wick. Obviously, we 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 want him to to, to survive, um, but at the same time, like his ultimate goal, that's not great to be a Dark Lord. So. I think you know it's. it's I mean, that, that is. I, I know what you're saying. That's what it's one of those things that occurred to me earlier in the in the in the process. Like, okay, you know, obviously, he's not going to be coming evil you know, overlord at the end. He's not going to um, bring about the end of the world. Um, 
so so as you read it, you get the sense that Wick wouldn't um, wouldn't be your average. You know, he would be a kind of good guy, essentially. And 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 what and you kind of what we kind of get out of the books is that um, the the bad reputation that all the monsters, the orcs and the ogres and the goblins have gotten is a bit of a lie. Maybe it's kind of a it's a story sort of spun by the elves and the dwarves and the the Aragorns of the world that you know that the you know the Dark Lord was just was evil. Like it, so, in this world, the monsters are more or less just misunderstood. Like they could be, from their point of view, they're they're good guys, and maybe all the knights and wizards are actually the bad guys. So it's a little bit of a it, it's sort of an alternate take on the whole fantasy world in which you know maybe the monsters are the protagonists and the the aggressors are actually the guys with the swords and the bows and arrows hunting them down. And I know that uh, you were a Dungeons and Dragons player, or I assume you, you still are. And I assume some of that factors into your world building into Confessions of a Dorkly. But when you were playing Dungeons and Dragons, did you tend to go for the dark guys, uh, the, the darker characters and, and that as well? That's interesting. I, you know, I was a huge Dungeons and Dragons guy when I was a kid. I, I don't do it as much anymore. I don't know. You get married and have a kid. Maybe I haven't found the time, although, you know, who doesn't have time in the pandemic? So I don't know if I'm being honest with myself. Um, I was a big fan. I was one of those guys who was, you know, I played, I was the dungeon master. I wrote my own adventures. I was like way in, I, I loved it. I've always loved the game. It's a great game. Um, and uh, it, it is a it is a huge influence on, on these books. These are they're a little bit of like living in that Dungeons and Dragons world because it kind of takes on kind of takes on a lot of the cliches and fantasy the way Dungeons and Dragons does. You know, it gives us all those worlds from Tolkien of orcs and dragons um, and lets you kind of play in them. So I'm kind of doing something similar. Um, you know, Dork Lord spends a little bit more time on humor, um, a little bit more meta. Um, but you know, there's definitely, it's definitely something that like, I can feel my younger self who loved Dungeons and Dragons, you know, um, kind of loving being in this, this, this world. Um, as far as playing them though, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I was ever really given, maybe as a dungeon, you know, I guess as a dungeon master, essentially you are the guy that plays all the mon, I never thought of it this way, but you're the guy who plays all the monsters, right? Cause all the players are playing usually at least when I was a guy, you know, we were all the heroes, all the players. You were the elves and the rangers and the fighters and spellcasters and clerics. And but the, the dungeon master, he is the guy who has to play all the monsters. So I, I guess I was playing the monsters. I didn't think of it that way. But all right, maybe it started back then. I mean, who doesn't love a good monster? That's <laughs> hard. Why you read fantasy? You want to read about the dragon? Yeah, monsters don't show up. We don't have a story. That's going to be a that's <laughs> such an interesting book. Uh, and then, so how do you go about and, and do your world building? Do you keep uh, a separate file with all of your information once you've declared something to be the rule of the land and you want to save that going forward into book two and presumably once the, those take off book three, four, five, and six? Good question. Um, you know, I, I did a little bit more of that for um, when I worked on my first fantasy novel for adults, Solaria, I did a little bit more of that where I was writing stuff about, you know, there was like, there was like four main kingdoms in that book. And so I was writing about a little bit of the history and it, it was so big that I actually did a little of that pre-writing first um, about each of the peoples. For Dork Lord, I didn't do that. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for it. One is that it, it is actually meant to embrace kind of all the literary cliches and kind of, kind of a fantasy and kind of turn them on their head. Um, so in a way I didn't want it to be completely unique. I wanted to play with the ideas that people were used to in fantasy and kind of like, you know, maybe question them, maybe make fun of them a little bit and have a little fun with them. And I think the other one was I, um, I'm sometimes opposed to doing too much pre-writing like that. I, I actually like if the, if the world building comes out in small little pieces in your story so that it, that it does, especially in middle grade, I don't want to dump any information on the kids ever. Like if I'm doing world building, it has to rise out of the action. Um, and, and, and Dork Lord has a lot of world building. I think I almost probably put a little bit too much in it. Uh, the second book really slims that down. Um, you know, it's, it's middle grade. It's, you know, you want it to move fast and be exciting. Um, 
So I really, if there is world building, I do try to build it into the action and dialogue so that, you know, the kids don't know they're finding out about the world as they do it. Um, in adult, you know, you've got a little bit more room, right? You can, uh, you can take a little time and, and adult readers like to read about the world a little bit more. So maybe I get a little more flexibility there. So do you keep, I mean, do, do, you, do you keep notes after you've worked it into the story and oh, save sure. it into a separate file so that you remember it forever later? Or is it all just kind of up here? Well, see, I, I haven't because I feel like the the Bible is just the novel. Like that first novel is is the, whatever is in there is the world. Because I'll do, because to be honest, I rewrite so much that if I put something into the world, I, I might change it and change it again and change it three times. I'd almost have to write like a new Bible for the world after writing the book, which would be useful if I actually took the time to do it. But I feel like the, the novel is really the repository of all of all the information that I want for that world. If it's, and if it's not in the novel, I feel free to change it. Um, but I do go back to the novel, that being said. So maybe that's where the, and to see, because you know we forget our own stuff unless we're constantly reading it. So I will, I, like when I wrote the second Dork Lord and when I wrote the second Solari novel, I went back to the first and refreshed my mind as to every single detail, just so that I could make sure that um, I had the kind of consistency you expect in a novel. How much of a time off did you take between the two books? All the, you know, I've written two in each series and they, they, they've all just sort of, the mainly, the ones for tour were mainly written before and the, the ones for pain were mainly written after, but there's, there's, there's overlap, um, which I actually don't like. I actually like to stop one for a while and then do the other one. Um, just because the voice is so different, it would typically take me weeks to, um, it's not something I could jump between in a day or something. Like the voice is so different between the middle grade and the adult fantasy that I literally just needed like time to get back into that mode of like telling jokes and kind of this spunky short sentences that we all use in middle grade uh, versus kind of the, the long drawn out complex compound sentences I use in, a, in an adult novel. Um, it's, it's, it's such a different way of writing. I do need a, I did find it hard to go back and forth. I needed just a little time to like uh, settle into that style. Do you find uh, overlap between the two where you can say, ah, no matter what I do as far as changing my tone, there's that one true note that is Mike Johnston that, that, that goes through the adult work and the uh, middle grade work? It's an question. You know, there isn't a lot of that, um, between these two series because again I literally wrote it as is like an antidote to this other book like it was literally just the opposite that it would cancel it out almost um I've, I've been working on a new middle grade series um that I haven't sold yet that actually is like that because I was interested because they were so different and I enjoyed the fact that they were different initially after a time I said you know it'd be interesting to do one that was halfway between these two you know these they were almost at different poles and I was like, can I come a little closer, like stay in middle grade, stay in fantasy, but make it a little less humor, a little more serious, um, a little, you know, a little bit more classic. Like Dork Blur is a book that feels right now to me. Like it feels like the way middle grade novels feel. Like could I write something a little bit more C.S. Lewis, you know? Um, so actually I haven't done that, but I'm working on trying to do that now. Like making something that whether it's adult or middle grade still kind of feels like me. So interesting you brought that up. That's it's kind of what I've been working towards. I must have psychically sensed it. <laughs> uh, then I wanted to uh, I wanted to make sure I ask you about your, your illustrator. It's uh, Marta Altos. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Uh, it's just so. wonderful uh, illustrations all throughout that, that bring the story to life. And I know that a lot of times you don't get that much say. Did you get to have any kind of conversation with with her or, or, or set her up in any kind of way for the types of illustrations you'd like? I, um, you know, there is a process you go through and, and um, it's, I haven't, I've never spoken to her or met her. Um, she, I believe she's lives in London. Um, and most of the conversations I've had have been through the publisher's art department. Um, so it's not, um, it's not quite the, you know, the back and forth you would get with a collaborator. Um, but uh, 
it really works. Like I, you know, I, I had to kind of in the end just sort of trust Penguin and trust my illustrator and you don't really know completely what you're going to get. I mean, they have the book and uh, I think she did an amazing job of it. Um, we did for Penguin, they had a program that was called read, write and draw, I believe where I, the, for illustrated books, the author would create a writing prompt. Like, I think I did like a, like a magic contest, like a throwdown sort of thing. Um, there's, if you've read the Once a Future King, there's that wizard battle near the front um, where Merlin battles the, the evil witch um, and they change each other to different things. So I, that was my writing prompt to do a battle between two wizards. And then she gave them a drawing prompt and Penguin put it together into a video and she showed her journal where she created all the characters for my book and it was it was just beautiful it was all ink drawings with watercolor um, so she's a great artist and she's a great ability to, i think to capture uh comedy and uh, they feel very middle grade um I, I really love the illustrations so i'm uh and i i love that there were so many I and mean, there's like a hundred illustrations and, and there's full page ones um and they're interwoven with the text um i'm super happy with the illustrations i'm really happy that she's working on the second book um and uh you know it takes longer um like i finished the second book i really i was finished with it this summer i did a second draft you know late summer early fall but it, it's still not going to come out till spring summer 2022 um and so there's a whole another book that has to be made when she makes all those illustrations um but it's really worth it. It, it, it. It's so much fun to have all those those illustrations, especially for a, I, I was definitely one of those kids and I'm not ashamed to say this at all, but I liked a book with good pictures in it. Um, it's a super fun, especially in fantasy. Like you love seeing all the, you know, there's so much imagination. Like, yeah, I want to see the dragons and the ogres and all, all the all the crazy, there's a lot of crazy environments in these books. Um, there's ice castles and dungeons and caves and all sorts of giant hundred foot tall creatures and they go flying and they're trapped in ice cells. So all these crazy goofy things happen. They ride on the backs of dragons. And, um, it's, it's, and so it's fun, it's fun to see it all illustrated. I love that. And I'm, I'm crazy excited to see what she does for the second book. A hundred percent worth, worth the wait. Uh, I don't usually comment cause I know that, um, you're, you're, you're the writer, you, you write the story, you craft the words, which, um, you know, that, that's why we're all here. But at the same time, this is an extremely well put together book. So anyone who's listening at, at Penguin, well, chef's kiss. What a what a wonderful book. The the, the coloring around the, the edges of the yeah, pages, the, the black is just fantastic. That. Yeah, they really. Um, yeah, I was really pleased with that. Yeah, there's these for people who can't see it. There's there are ink stain like it's and it's I really it went through a lot because it's the book is illustrated in that handwritten font that we see in a lot of journal books like Wimpy Kid, but that font is huge. Like if we were to set the book in Times Roman, that book would be 200 pages. But when you set it in the comic book font, it becomes like 300 pages. Like it's just, the font just is huge when you read it, write it on the page. But I, and they were like, it's going to make your book really long. Like it looks long. It looks like a, it's like a 320 page book. So it looks it looks long and it's not a long book. It's just that font makes it big. Um, but it really gives it the look of being handwritten by a kid, which is what I wanted. And it has ink stains on it. Yeah. And like darkened pages. Like I, I love that. Yeah. No, they did a, they did a great job. It's, it's always, you know, sometimes as an author, you have something in your head and the final product doesn't match it because, you know, nobody can read our minds. Um, so it usually doesn't match it. But in this one, I was like, well, that's what I wanted. That looks like a kid's kind of crazy you know, medieval journal, you know, uh, it's even got, you know, there's like scratches on the cover and stuff. Like it, it, it's pretty, it, you know, it looks like a kid made it. I, I love that. Does that, um, does that change uh, how you approach the second book at all, knowing that that's going to be the style for the book? Um, or did you turn it in? Well, well no, you, you said you did a second draft this, this summer. Yeah. So does yeah. that change your, your approach? Yeah, that's it's an interesting thought. You know, I did, I'd never done an illustrated book before. So I really, um, I didn't really know how the process was going to work. So in my first draft of the first book, I actually, excuse me, um, put in suggestions for all the illustrations. So I was like, we have a picture of the dragon here and a picture of this there. And, and I would actually come up with jokes like him, I don't know, falling in a toilet here or something. Um, so I put in all, and, and 
that doesn't really work. They actually like the illustrator just, just, just in the art department to kind of decide how to do it. So I, I, and that made it harder for me initially to imagine what they were doing because I was like, well, I, ha I have an idea of how I want the illustrations to look. And that's not how it always really works. They, you know, I think the artist is an artist like, you know, the writer is an artist and they need some space to work. And I didn't, I didn't realize that at first. I thought, you know, I'm the author. It's just me. I'm going to dictate everything. Like, I'll tell you what to illustrate. And I think I was wrong. You know, uh, and I think, you know. I want you to be right, but no, I, I don't uh, think so. You know, I, well, I, I, thought, I thought I was right, too, and I wasn't. Um, that's, you know, and I'm not above learning. Um, and I, I do think I learned a lot from that. I, um, I was, I realized, you know, it's actually better to give these people some space. So when I wrote the second book, I didn't, you know, I didn't even bother to think about the illustrations, which is really the best way to go. Cause then, you know, we're not trying to tell somebody else how to do their art. And, um, so I, in a way, as I learned to have some confidence in the in the process, I learned that you know what, just write a good book and then let them create a great set of illustrations, and that's all you need to do. Um, so, so I'm a little bit more relaxed about this one. I, you know, I have confidence that it's gonna it's gonna look amazing, and you know, probably in six or eight months when I see the illustrations, I'll be super excited. Well, if you don't set expectations up front, you can't possibly be disappointed, just overjoyed okay. by the <laughs> the work they've created, right? <laughs> and well, why not? I've been disappointed by many things, but luckily that wasn't one of them. Yeah, I, the illustrations were great. Um, so, um, so lots of uh, fantastic uh, blurbs on, on on this book uh, that I'm extremely uh, jealous of. Pseudonymous uh, Bosch, uh, Aaron Kofer. Uh, and then Melissa de la Cruz. How could you possibly have gotten a blurb from Melissa de la Cruz? It was, uh, I went on a quest and uh, that involved uh, walking down the hallway in our house. Oh, uh, sure. <laughs> the library um, to my wife's office. It's uh, one, you know, one or two rooms away from my office, uh, which is if you're watching the video that way. Um, and I asked her for it. So. You know, it was weird. You know, I, it, it's funny. People, many people have asked me about that because they're like, well, it's just your wife uh, who gave you the blurb. And I said, yeah, the publisher asked me to do it. And I said, well, I'll ask her. Why not? So, yeah, that's a, I, I thought it was a little, I was like, you really want me to get my wife? And they were like, yeah, she's a big memory author. Why don't you? What's she going to do? Say no. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a little, it, I, I sort of chuckled. And some of my friends have, uh, laughed at me and they're like really you couldn't get anybody with your wife I was like I, I think maybe we could I just you know they thought it was a good idea so we went with it Are you kidding me that's a great blurb to have on your book I would yeah. love to have a I, Melissa de la Cruz I, blurb exactly. <laughs> I'm not complaining it's it's all good um, no uh, for esteemed audience go back check episode 98 when when she was here because we talked a little bit about uh working and and being married to a writer because i'm fascinated by by people that can do this where everybody is the the writer because uh, in my critique group i noticed that it 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 seemed to be that there'd be the one of us who was the writer and then the spouse who was the more practical had the more traditional job with the insurance and the, <laughs> the steady paycheck um so when I when I see two people both in uh, both doing it together, especially two people who who have both done it incredibly successfully, uh, I wonder what uh, how does that because you guys you you, you did a uh, trilogy together right uh, with Frozen I don't remember what the uh, yeah, about the Frozen. Vegas under ice yeah yeah you got a good one yeah that Frozen stolen golden um, uh, Heart of Dread series yeah we did we we started we'd worked together for a long time on. Um, just unofficially on a lot of books, like a lot of the fantasy books that she wrote, like uh, Blue Bloods, she wrote a vampire uh, series for a long time that was YA, and we, we collaborated on that. And that kind of led to us saying, yeah, it'd be interesting to try a series together. Um, you know, I, I, I think we worked for a long time uh, on how to work together. I think, I think it's been a, a challenge to, uh, to find a way to, to be married and to work efficiently together. And I think we found that the best way is actually not to, to co-write. Like, I think it, it helps to actually just be able to send, it, it makes it more like a peer group or like a writer's group where I can, I can send it to you and your name's not on it. You're not thinking of it as one of your books. You're able to just simply be a critic. 
And so I think we work well together when we're not, when both of our names are, or when only one of our names is on the book and the other person can simply act as a kind of editor or an author who gives feedback, some kind of beta reader. Um, that seems to work really well for us. And, and I like that. We will send each other uh, books and proposals uh, just for ideas and feedback. Um, and it, it, that, that seems to work well. Um, and it's certainly great to have a, a reader in the house. Um, well, she talked about when, when, when she was on, again, a Steve Audience episode 98. Cue it up for after this. It's a great time. Good use every day. Um, she talked about she was working a, a day job and, and, and writing uh, after hours, and you were uh, an architect, and then right. you were working and writing after hours. So how does that home life work with, with the child? And also, were you both writers originally, or was one of you a writer who converted the other one? My right, my wife was a writer long before I was. I think it's she always. She was one of those people who always knew what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a writer, and um, she was working in another job. She was working computers prior to that, um, and she was, as you said, uh, working a day job and writing in the evenings. And um, I'm trained as an architect. Um, I worked in New York and here in Los Angeles, and worked on my own uh, for a time as well. And uh, I, I did the same thing, you know, what, she, she was a writer like long before I ever wrote anything. Um, she was a full-time writer and I still was working in architecture and I started, you know, writing on the side here and there. Um, and, and when I had a chance and wasn't working. Um, so it's something that I, I slowly came to over a long period of time. Um, it was probably a sort of decade long transition between being in an architecture firm and uh, actually working on writing full-time um, so it takes a while as far as our home life now you know I always used to rent an office so we wouldn't be in the same house together writing and that was incredibly important because I think in a marriage just strictly speaking it helps to be apart right it's nice if one person comes home from work and says oh I was out and I had lunch here and there you know um, you know, when you're both in the house, there's not, it's not a lot of, there's not much to, there's less to talk about. So it's more of a challenge, but we, we've worked it out. I mean, I, I had to give up my office because of uh, the coronavirus a year ago and I've been working at home. So we're back we haven't been both working from the house in about 10 years. Um, I rented an office for 10 years. So I was always away. And I think that was really great. It worked well for us, but you know, to be honest, I'm back home again, writing and I'm loving it. Um, you know, the coronavirus, uh, I know a lot of people have had different reactions to it. For me, it's given me a real chance to like kind of focus. Um, it's given me a little bit more time. It's cut out a lot of the distractions. So it's, for both of us, we've been more productive in it. I mean, nobody's happy in the coronavirus, but, but at least I'm more productive. And we just, you know, we try to live our separate lives. Like it's literally, it's just, you know, She's 20 feet away from me, but we kind of pretend we're in a different office building until five o'clock. And I think that works. Yeah, this is Kent uh, working toward the back of the house about the same distance away. Yep, yep. It's, you got to pretend you're in an office, right, to some degree. And I'm so used to thinking, my God, everything's uh, terrible. 2020, the, the the meme that when I write, I, I think on things, that, you know what? There's a lot of positives here too. I feel almost a little bit guilty. Like, but, but, but there are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are. I mean, I'm not going to, this is literally the worst public health crisis in the history of America. I'm not going to deny that. But, you know, I think you have to try to make, you know, something positive for yourself. And so I, you know, we try try to you know the it has given us more time it's given us time and for writers that's great because it's it takes time kind of feel just recently and we're recording this uh january 25th january of, of 2021 uh so without getting political there have been some political events that have recently occurred and so i'm 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 calling this the great unclenching uh, where <laughs> like, all right, we, we were sharing kind of at Armageddon. That's what that looks like. And oh, yeah. it sounds like we've gotten a reprieve. We'll, we'll see what we'll see. When do I start calming down? Because I've been like, you know, just braced for impact for four years. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been one thing on top of another. It's, you know, it's not just the coronavirus or Donald Trump. Uh, you know, it's, we live in California and so everything's been shut. You know, it's been particularly difficult here. And so, you know, we've had 
everything shut down, um, which is good. We're trying to be safe here. Um, but you know, it's, it does, it's a challenge for every, it's been a challenge, you know, so we're, I think, you know, I like to work really hard, be creative and then, you know, get out of the house, and, you know, go have dinner in a restaurant or something. So that's just part of my creative process. You know, I like to work really hard. Then I get out, um, my wife and I are both art collectors. So I like to spend a lot of time in museums and art galleries and, uh, um, you know, we're both ex-New Yorkers. We like cities and culture. And, you know, that whole thing has been under assault during the coronavirus. You know, it's just, you can't, all the museums have been closed for a year. So much of all the things that, you know, urbanites love are just closed off to us. Um, and that's fine. I don't mind making the sacrifice. Some people are having horrible things, you know, imagine owning a restaurant or a bar. So we're all just blessed to be able to keep working. Um, but, uh, you know, I try to make the best of it. So Fair enough. Dark turn in the conversation anytime the coronavirus comes. Well, out. here is Mabel to make things bright. The esteemed <laughs> audience looks forward to Mabel's guest appearance. Ooh, feisty tonight. There she goes. Yeah, so Never going to be a happy topic. Um, I did have uh, one more question uh, for you that I only feel it was fair because I asked uh, your wife when she was here um, about writer ego. So I'm always trying to figure out um because it's you need some ego to think that you can do the thing that you're setting out to do yeah. and to have the confidence that you're going to create something that will be worth uh somebody reading that somebody is going to read your book and as a result they're never going to get around to a tale of two cities i don't know uh and so you got to make sure that you're, you're you're providing a quality experience and you have to have the confidence that you can do that but of course too much ego turns on you uh and and undermines a, a, a writer um, so have you had that experience where you felt that your ego got the best of you and then had to pull it back? You know, I'm, I'm not naturally that type of kind of egotistical, overconfident sort of, sort of person that, you know, thinks they're, they're a gift to everyone. I'm generally pretty measured in my, uh, estimation of myself um so I, I don't really i'm not like you know i'm no egoist who thinks they're god's gift to literature you know i, I like try to be pretty realistic about you know i think because i came into the arts via architecture which is kind of the you know it's 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 they call it the mother of the arts it, it you know it is an art but it's highly collaborative and especially doing it in a place like new york city it's, it's pretty brutal like we we're, architects are really hard on each other um, so I, you know, I, I came from a profession that kind of stomps down your ego. So I, I didn't, when I came to books, I was, you know, I was pretty measured about what I was going to accomplish. I work really hard. I, I, with everything I do, I try to improve what I do. Um, and, you know, it's one of those professions where you learn to kind of, you know, keep your head down and work really hard um, and not think too much of that. But, you know, you are right. You, you do have to, you do have to think that what you're doing is worth doing and you have to have you know, nobody really knows what's great and what isn't, aside from, you know, the Great Gatsby or something. You know, nobody knows if this little book is that much better than that little book. So you just have to have the confidence that, you know, mine is worth publishing, mine is worth reading. I, you know, I know, I completely agree with you. Um, and it's, you know, maybe it's a delusion. I don't know. Maybe you're, we're just all kidding ourselves that, you know, uh, we, we never really know. But, you know, I think, I think, you know, we, we also have this audience of one where I, I, make sure that I do things that I love and that I would love to read, you know, and whether, you know, my adult books are something I'd love to read right now. My kids books are something that I would have loved to have read when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, um, 11. And, and so, you know, I, I try to at least meet that criteria. Let's, you know, spend our time on something we, we love and we think is, is, is really fun. So. You might, uh, yeah, I think you're the first person I've ever talked to that, that could answer this question. Uh, how is building a plot for a novel similar to designing a, a building? How does architecture overlap with fiction crafting? That's funny. Uh, you know, I used to, you know, when I, when I first started working on the two, when we, you mentioned that trilogy that I co-wrote, um, we went on a book tour for that one. And I was, I was still in architecture at the time but I had the books as well. So I was, I was really keen on drawing parallels between the two of them. And uh, I, there are no direct parallels, to be honest. I mean, they, they're all sort of metaphorical. Like, yeah, you could say, you know, a set of, you know, we do like in buildings, we do like this thing 
we do this kind of initial diagram of the program, which is all the functions. Like you walk in, you go to this office, then you go to that one. It's called a bubble diagram, and it maps all the all the functions in a building. And you know, people could say, "Oh, that's like an outline of the action, maybe." You know what I mean? And like, so there's a and so there's there's things, but they're not really the same. And if you know how to make a bubble diagram, you don't know how to write an, an outline for a book. You know what I mean? They're totally different crafts. <laughs> you know what I mean? I kept trying to tell myself, oh, there's going to be all this overlap. There's no overlap. You have to, it's a completely different art form. They have to learn. <laughs> they're, both, they're both detailed, meticulous, time consuming. That's probably the, the, the only thing they truly have in time is that both things, architecture is one of those terms where it's just infamous for taking massive amount of time architecture these people that are always in the office till 2 a.m drawing plans because it just takes so much time so much effort there's so much detail so that to me that's the biggest overlap especially like working on fantasy and science fiction that's very detail oriented and world building like it's just metaphorically kind of like architecture which is very detailed very meticulous and you you create every you know when you're an architect and you're working in these kind of very um high-end kind of avant-garde buildings you're drawing where every screw is you know and specking what kind of screw it is it's there's just an infinite amount of detail in there so in that sense it's a little bit like a fantasy book that you know like a well-written adult fantasy where every single little detail has been thought through in terms of how the world influences the plot and the character and all these different levels so you could say there's a similarities but they're not direct obviously I, I'd be reaching is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. um, well, is there, um, is there overlap, I assume, between uh, uh, spending a lot of time at a desk creating, getting, yeah, getting used to that? That's probably the biggest overlap. In, in both of them, you spend your life, as I am now, in front of a computer monitor. Um, <laughs> in one, I'm typing, and the other one's a lot of clicking in AutoCAD. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's not good for your eyes or your back. Um, 12 hours a day at your desk. What, uh, I mean, is that about what your average workday looks like now is 12 hours? No, I was trying to make it sound like I work more. Um, no, I don't know. It's not 12 hours. <laughs> I wish it was 12 hours. Well, I'm almost 50, so it's not 12 hours. Um, uh, it, you know, I, I work at, you know, I'm a, I, we work from home, so it's like I get up, I start working, stop for lunch, stop for dinner, I'll go back to my desk a little bit. You know, it's as much as I can do, but yeah. The, the, you know, the, when I had an architecture firm, it was 12 hours and that, you know, I was in my thirties and that almost killed me. So those when days you're uh, done writing, is it time to read or how are you unwinding uh, during quarantine? I do, I do read. Um, I mean, I'm not a big TV watcher. I will, I'll, I don't know if there's something good, we'll stream it. Um, they, sadly, there's been a dearth of quality programming in the quarantine. I can't think of something good I've watched, but I'll, you know, I'll, I watch all the genre shows. I'll watch all the sci-fi and fantasy shows if there's something good. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm watching The Expanse now. Um, I like that. Um, I don't like superhero stuff really. Um, so yeah, I read. I, I try to. I try to at least make sure I read. Like I spend like the hour, two hours a night reading if I can. Like it just. That to me is the way to relax at the end of the day. I'm just thinking about how much time I could free up if I didn't like the superhero stuff. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's like Probably a third of American media yeah. off the table. <laughs> There's a lot of it out there. Well, you know, I have like I grew up reading comic books. I, I mean, I loved superhero stuff. I'm just not as into it at this point in my life. Um, I, I don't like the I don't like the Marvel stuff now. It's too goofy. I, when I was a kid and I read Marvel comic books, they were much more serious, and I quite like but it's too many jokes now. That's Fair just, enough. Everyone else likes them, so I know I'm alone. Uh, well, like anything else, I'm sure it'll get paired back, and then there'll be some other hot trend that oh, yeah. will come up. And if you could predict accurately when it will hit and what it will be, you could make a lot of money. <laughs> exactly. I can't, so... <laughs> Uh, and then uh, I'm watching our time, and I'm, I'm, I'm aware it's flying by, so probably about time to, to think about calling in. But esteemed audience knows that I can't get out of here without asking you about flying saucers, because I ask everybody about ghosts and flying saucers. Uh, and since you have written, you are an architect who's written about the architecture of ancient Egypt, bonus question for you. Have you ever seen a flying saucer or a ghost? And ancient aliens, is that just a bunch of crap, or is there some merit to <laughs> what you studied? Ancient alien is, is a bunch of crap. 
Um, yeah. And I haven't seen a flying saucer or anything. I, I'm absolutely certain there's there's life out there. I mean, there's no doubt. The, all those Kepler planets they keep finding in that Goldilocks zone for life, there's just, I mean, we've found thousands of them already, and there are, there are untold millions of them out there. So there's life out there, no doubt. Um, I don't know if we'll ever see it. It's, you know, gajillions of light years away. So once somebody, you know, figures out how to move near light speed, maybe we will. But until then, they're just, there's life out there, but it's really, really, really far away. So um, there's a great story by William Gibson about flying saucers. Um, God, I can't remember what it's called. He basically said that, you know, flying saucers aren't going to look like saucers because we didn't build them. They're going to look like something that we can't even think up, you know, um, because they're made by aliens who come from another world and another culture. So I don't know. I don't know if we'd know what a flying saucer looked like if we saw it. I don't even know if we'd know that it was a spaceship. It'll, it'll be interesting if we ever find a, another civilization. Interesting ending. Mean. We'll see what we'll see. I feel like um, with the Pentagon coming out and saying that they have a program, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to get disclosure at some point, and then I could stop asking people and just say, "Hey, what do you think about the flying saucers that were that were in the news?" I mean, sign me up. I'd, look, I'd be first in line. I'd love to see a flying saucer, so whatever it actually is. Um, yeah, no, that, I saw that Pentagon thing. I don't quite know how to react to it. I think it'd be really. I'm, it's fascinating. It seems like if you were sitting on that kind of news that you knew at some point you had to release to the public, this would be the year. <laughs> Everyone's very yeah. distracted. Yeah. <laughs> bury the lead. Like, yeah, put it out now because no one would even care in 2020, 2020. I mean, there's so much going on in the world that, oh, aliens, of course, it's 2020, you know. That mm. makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they will drop it now. It'll, it'll just be ignored because there's we're all just trying to wait to get the vaccine. So I hope yeah, so. that's uh, no, that would that would be much bigger news uh, <laughs> at the moment if I could get the vaccine rather than see a flying saucer. I don't know. Fact. You know what? Give me give me a day to think yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's a big decision. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mike Johnston, Michael Johnston for adults. Thank you so much for for making the time this evening. I, I see our time has has flown away, so I'm going to ask you my last question, and we'll, we'll call it a night. Uh, but uh, thank you so much again for for being here, for being such a, an extraordinary guest. Um, but my final question is always some variation of if you could go back toward the start of your writing career and offer yourself some writing advice that would have made a big difference for you and would hopefully make a big difference for all of the authors who are listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Well, that's fascinating. Um, God, that's such, I, you know, I try not to do that because it's such like, you know, trying to change the past, which you can't really do. Um, but if I had to think about it, I think I would, you know, I've, uh, I think I would have told myself to try to sell my first novel on proposal. I, I, I was given a lot of advice to just sort of, you know, write the entire book. And it takes a really long time to write an adult epic fantasy novel. And I thought it would have been nice if I could have sold that on a proposal in about a third of the book. But, you know, that would have saved me a lot of time. But you know, maybe I wouldn't have sold it then. So you know, it's all it's all second guessing. You don't know if I. So, um, but that I, that was one thing that in hindsight I thought well, that would have been nice if I could have worked on that for a year and then sold it instead of years. Um, but you know, then you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it wouldn't have ever sold. So, but yeah, there's my advice to myself. Can't take it because it's in the past. But hey. Where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, find out more about you, follow you on Twitter, all that good stuff? Um, so I use the same handle for Twitter and Instagram. I'm usually on Instagram, um, not on Twitter as often. And my handle is just my mid my first initial M and my last name, Johnston. So M Johnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N, and then author. M Johnston author at Twitter, at Instagram. And it's also, my website is the same thing, M Johnston author. If you type that in, you'll get my website. So they're all three the same, pretty easy. 
Uh, and as always, esteemed audience, head to middlegradeninja.com for uh, interviews with uh, literary agents, editors, authors, publishing professionals, all the best people. Uh, make sure you download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.